Well, as we were just hearing from federal health officials, Pfizer's Paxlovid COVID-19 antiviral pill has now been approved for use in this country. Health Canada announcing earlier today it has approved the antiviral pill. It can be given to adults 18 and older who test positive for COVID-19 and who are experiencing mild or moderate illness and who are also at risk of becoming more seriously ill. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Dr. Horacio Bach, Clinical Assistant Professor and Manager of the Antibody Engineering and Proteomics at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you so much for having me. How much of a, a game changer is it, or what do you think this will mean as far as the fight against COVID-19? The main point here is that we can keep um, a big chunk of the population outside of the hospital. That That is the main problem we have right now. A lot of people are hospitalized. And on top of that, we have understaffed uh, hospitals or facilities. So we know that it's a problem with uh, nurses and healthcare provided that, um, uh, you know, that's not working at the level we expect because they are the sick or for other reasons. So these uh, pills basically, and it's already proven, I know in Israel they did already, uh, they are using that. And what I heard from my colleagues is that after two days, people just feel completely uh, um, not sick, basically. Everything is, is it's over. So it's very important because that will keep our facilities for other type of diseases or uh, more severe diseases in case we have. So do do you get the impression then, so that's great that so after two days, if somebody takes this medication, they don't feel sick anymore. Do you think that it does it then shorten the isolation period that is, is somebody then kind of you're, you can kind of go back to normal life and you're not infectious anymore as well? Well, uh, this bill is not going to be uh, given to everyone. That will be for the group that you mentioned in the beginning. And it's not someone that, oh, I need to travel. I will take that just in case. That need to be prescribed by the by the doctor because there may be some side effects or interaction with other drugs. So that is the the, the physician or your family doctor the responsible to to prescribe that. So um, basically, the treatment is for five days and must be taken the first five days since these symptoms started or they tested positive or all these uh, 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 symptoms that we know. And probably it will take about five days, the, the treatment. So I don't see that in 10 days, basically, uh, we'll be ready because you have up to five days to take that and then five days treatment. And we know that the, 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 the kind of quarantine or isolation now is about five days. So it's basically even. I don't think will be a big uh, difference right now. Okay, so so the main objective of this is if you are in that high risk group or you uh, that you would be able to take this medication and it would re- vastly reduce your chance of hospitalization or even death. That's correct. We have to make a, a, also mention that um, we receive about thirty thousand uh, what they call course, course drug means that for the treatment, and um, my understanding Pfizer is probably sold out everywhere because the demand is extremely high and they are starting to build new facilities to provide more and more. But it's not going to be that we will get 10 million doses right now. So it will take time until they start to produce because it's based on what we call synthesis, means it's a derivative of another drug that needs to be uh, changed by chemical 
uh, reaction, and then we will get. So we don't expect that will be a huge amount right now. It will be some that will be used only for these extreme cases, basically. What are your thoughts on what a lot of people, I think, are asking or questioning about this? Is treatment or using this drug for people who are not vaccinated or who chose not to be vaccinated? Should the drug be prioritized for that group to keep them, again, to lower that chance of hospitalization or death? Well, um, according to the guidelines that they mentioned in public health, that will be only for people they are unvaccinated but showing severe cases. Um, again, this drug, this pill, is not coming instead of the vaccine. Right. It's like a complement. So um, I don't know if they will be used when we have more and more uh, a supply. It will be used for these people, but they definitely um, it can be used. But right now it's only for uh, cases that... Either this specific person has a underlying disease that can be complicated or showing severe cases, then it will be used. Right. And I guess the, the problem or the, the concern there might be that you kind of it, the potential is to maybe pit people against each other again in that people who are vaccinated but are still becoming infected would want access to this and question, well, why should somebody who chose not to get vaccinated go to the front of the line or get this medication ahead of that? I think that uh, will be some guidelines because that's a doctor need to prescribe. Right. You cannot go to the over-the-counter and say to the pharmacist, give me uh, the, the, the drug. It's not going to happen. And probably they will prioritize right now these cases. And again, uh, you know, people that are not vaccinated for sure is, is not a, 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 um, coming instead the vaccine. Um, yeah, it's a good question you you uh, you ask, but it's it's very hard to answer. But I think there will be guidelines according uh, based on the who needs to get and what are the the conditions to get this this drug. Uh, you mentioned as well, this isn't a replacement for vaccination. It's a complement to that. Are you concerned, though, that people might see it that way, that if there's a pill that even once you get infected, it can stop you from getting seriously ill? It might boost up someone's belief if somebody is hesitant about being vaccinated to thinking, oh, well, I guess I don't need to do that because this pill, this option is now out there. Um, yes, I agree with you. It's still a controversial question. But um, again, I don't know. This will probably be very expensive. I don't know if it's about $700, $1,000, the treatment. And you need to take 30, 30, 30 pills in five days. Each time you take their three pills together. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes you know to take so many pills, people may say, no, I don't want to take so many. But um, it, it's a problem, I understand. And the government or public health need to put, you know, the, the rules and, and, and do that. Because, as you say, it's very easy. Oh, you know, I don't have vaccines, so I know I have this drug and it's fine. But, again, uh, most of the population, they are sick today with the Omicron. We know that it's for a very short period of time and it's not severe. So I think this uh, ammunition, let's say, will be kept only for cases like a long-term facilities for people that have underlying diseases or they're immunocompromised. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you mentioned that with the Omicron and so many people infected with it. And we really are at that place now where I, I think 
not everybody, I suppose, but so many people now know people or have had the virus and are recovering from it. What are your thoughts on where we're at with it being so prevalent in the community now? Yeah, yeah. So that that that's true. We were talking today the same situation. Always, you will know someone now that it was with the Omicron. Um, well, the situation I think is at this point is is not many cases are severe or the number of deaths is not as the original um, uh, strain that we had the Wuhan strain. Uh, my concerns are always that as a result of the high level of multiplication of this virus, the Omicron, um, it may appear a new variant that will be a mutation on the Omicron that can be problematic. And then we don't want to be in this scenario that you say a very highly transmissible virus and very lethal. So, um, yeah, meanwhile, we, con- we need to continue to um, to monitor and take our uh, uh, guidelines from um, the public health and continue. You know, it's not we are not over. Um, I know a lot of people that are infected even in, in public transportation, and I see because uh, I use as well. I see a lot of people they don't use mask or they are they put the mask below the the nose, and it's not the way to use that. So um, people need to take their their portion as well. Yeah. All right, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks for joining us and thanks for talking about this. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Well, if you live in the city of Vancouver, you know it is expensive. If you own property in the city, you know the property taxes have gone up quite significantly, probably more than what uh, raises you might have seen at your workplace. And some new numbers that were crunched by Kenneth Chen, who is a reporter with Daily Hive. Some new numbers show that Vancouver spent about $219 million on things that really fall under the responsibility of both the provincial and the federal governments. Not saying these issues aren't important, but they are issues that should really be covered by other levels of government. So the big question, had the city not spent that money on those initiatives or perhaps spent less, would that mean it is more of an affordable city for its residents? Well, joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, what are your thoughts, even just looking at these numbers, $219 million on, again, things that are the responsibility of other levels of government? Well, firstly, uh, great to see the Daily Hive and Mr. Chen covering this. And kudos uh, to the city councillor, Sarah Kirby-Young, uh, who apparently had put forth a motion to get dollars and cents, to get data like this. So once we know that it's more than $200 million or whatever the current tally is and that they're spending that other governments should be covering, then we can start having the conversation. Generally speaking, uh, when we get emails from folks who are concerned about what the city is spending money on, they want the city to spend money on things such as keeping the roads safe and in good repair, making sure that their waste and recycling is picked up on time, making sure their parks are safe, uh, that sort of stuff. They don't typically want them spending money on kind of bigger, more international issues like solving, you know, global warming, for example. They want them to focus on the local issues. Now, to your point, and it's a good point, these issues are important, especially things such as the opioid crisis, the misery that we are seeing in the downtown east side that obviously needs attention. Our concern is that there's money going out the door and it's not getting fixed. 
Like, I don't know anybody uh, who in the last 10 years, for example, can say, oh, well, it's really improved down there. You know, it looks like there's fewer people out on the streets. People seem to be getting the help that they need. I don't know anybody who says that. And so this is where it comes down to accountability. Yes, they're spending a lot of money on it. No, it doesn't look like they're getting the results they need. So what needs to happen is, we think, uh, we need a permanent and sharp-toothed municipal auditor general office for the province of British Columbia that checks into all this stuff and that can take whistleblower calls. And frankly, they need to keep a better line of communication between levels of government. They need to make sure they're not doing overlap and they need to make sure that they're actually getting results. Uh, do you think, do we hear too often then from governments, because it, there is that that risk of when you try to call them out on it or, or find some accountability, the answer can often be, what are you talking about? These are very important issues and many of the issues that you just raised. But there seems to sometimes be that pushback going, well, how dare you suggest we don't spend money on this because it's very important, whereas the pushback isn't that you don't spend money on it, it's that the the money comes from that government where that government has jurisdiction. Yes, and fix the problem. Like just saying, well, we're spending money on it and how dare you say we shouldn't, that's a cop-out. That's saying, well, we're throwing money at the problem and I'm then going to turn my back and close my eyes and plug my ears and expect it to disappear. And year over year, I'm going to turn back around and, oh my goodness, look, it's still a mess. Well, no, you need to have accountability in between you noticing there being a problem and when you're throwing money at it. It has to be effective. Uh, The vast majority of people I talk to are caring, compassionate people. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum, you know, quote unquote, they're on. They want to see results, though. They want to see that these people are truly getting the help they need. They want to see that their streets are safer and not less safe. They want to know they can take their kids to the park. And so that's where it's like, okay, fine, we can spend millions of dollars on this, but it's got to do something. We can't spend the money and get no results for it. And this is what's, I think, key in this report here on Daily Hive, is that it's easy to say, oh, well, the feds or the province are downloading this burden onto us. What that typically means is health care, for example. They're throwing it on to, you know, the shoulders of City Hall. Or City Hall is turning around and throwing its hands up in the air and saying that you guys need to deal with the bridges. All levels of these levels of government are very well paid. It's all paid through by taxpayers' money. They all have each other's phone numbers. They all know how to Zoom. They can all have committee meetings. We need to demand more accountability so that this money is not wasted and the telephone game isn't being played here where they're just passing the buck of responsibility. And when you talk as well about those core services and really the things that people do expect from their civic government, I mean, I I even noticed it when we had the snowfall. And under no circumstances would I expect any city in Metro Vancouver to to have a huge budget when it comes to snow removal, given the fact that we don't get a whole lot of snow. I get that the side streets aren't all going to be plowed miraculously by the next day. But uh, I was also seeing a lot of comments on a few neighborhood groups that I'm on with people saying, what's going on? Not my recycling. Cycling hasn't been picked up. The garbage hasn't been picked up. And it, had, it, was, it wasn't the day after. It was a while after. And then I happened to be at the Zero Waste Station in Vancouver, which is down off Marine Drive. 
And it was this long line of Evo cars and vehicles of people taking their recycling in. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? So the city trucks can't (laughs) navigate the streets to pick up the recycling, but people in Evos and other vehicles have no problem getting to the zero waste transfer station. Something doesn't make sense here. Yes, exactly. And this is where they need to know what either hand is doing. They can't just, you know, have a decree or have people not come into work for whatever reason and then not know what the result is going to be. And again, we're not talking about people starting something from scratch. These are professionally paid bureaucrats and and city councillors. In some cases, these folks have master's degrees in like urban planning and we pay them well. And so this is where we're saying, folks, okay, we know you need to spend money to get stuff done, but the stuff isn't getting done. And this is where it's especially heartbreaking, as is pointed out in this piece, is that we wind up spending all this money at the physical, local, city level on something as awful as the opioid crisis, but it's not improving. So why aren't they making sure that it's improving? You know, everybody here involved is compassionate. Most of them have some experience with this. Figure it out and know where the money is going as well, which is, again, why we're saying we need a municipal auditor general. So in the same way that this excellent motion showed that $219 million has been spent at the city level, that should have typically had been the domain of both provincial and federal levels. Fine. That's a data point we can use now. We need to expand that so that we know every single nickel that is going into these groups that is supposed to be helping these folks at the opioid crisis, where it's going and why, and figure out if it's the best use of our dollars. Do you think it would make an impact more so at that level, given that we do have an auditor general federally? We've had some bombshells coming Mm -hmm. out from various auditor generals. Do you think, does that actually lead to change? It does. It does. Look at what happened in Ontario, for example, when they had the so-called green energy scandal. That was because they had an auditor general named Bonnie Lithic, who is a very sharp lady, and she's from Manitoba. She had previously worked in the hydro realm, so she knew what she was talking about. She was then, she was the auditor general of Ontario. She did the deep dive. She did the work. They found out that they'd been overcharging the people billions of dollars on their hydro bills. And so that's why their hydro bills were $400 and $500 a month in the dead of winter, not even using it for heat. That had a government change. That changed the government. That's one of the main reasons why Doug Ford became premier, was because of the hydro scandal. If they hadn't known those facts, those hard, cold dollars and cents, nothing would have changed. We're also seeing change, for example, at the B.C. legislature. Now, officers of the legislature have to post all of their expenses all the time. There's no more wood splitter being bought or whale watching tours written off as tsunami awareness nonsense. So change does does occur when you have data. And this is where we're saying we need a permanent watchdog and a whistleblower line for our city halls. So people have a place to call when they see this stuff happening. All right. Chris Sims, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks so much for this. Thank you for caring. Well, we were talking about this not too, too long ago on this program. Today, we got an update when it comes to spot prawn harvesting. Part of that update reads, we are celebrating a wonderful announcement today. Ottawa heard the voices of harvesters and shoreside businesses and the spot prawn tubbing issue has finally been resolved. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Sonia Strobel, co-founder and CEO of Skipper Auto. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. 
Well, hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's nice to have a positive and a happy update. So what happened in this case? Yeah, it's a great update, isn't it? We finally received an update from the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, Joyce Murray, that uh, the spot prawn issue has been resolved and that uh, harvesters will be allowed to continue to tub and tail uh, prawns in the one-pound tubs that they have been doing for around 50 years. So we, we have the resolution we've been asking for for the last year. So why did we have to go through all of this uh, at all, do you think? That's a great question. I, I don't think we still have any answers on that. There was this reinterpretation almost a year ago to the Fisheries General Regulation that said suddenly out of nowhere that these tubs no longer met the requirement of being readily available for inspection. And then we went through this whole year of, you know, five hours of emergency sessions at the House of Commons exploring this, you know, kind of uncovering that there there is no reason for that. There's no conservation reason for it. They're easy to thaw to inspect. And so, you know, thankfully we've come around to this, you know, kind of reasonable resolution, which is, yes, the, the industry can continue in the way that it has been. Which must come as a huge relief to you. It is. It's a huge relief to us and to, to the whole industry. Really, this is the, the way that harvesters, this is kind of the best market for harvesters to market their own cash, their spot prawns locally. And it's the best way for Canadians to get these amazing spot prawns. And so it's just such a, uh, a relief that they can continue, that people can continue to get spot prawns in this way. And, and actually beyond that, it's this relief that we finally feel heard in the industry, you know, that, that this is, there's often decisions that are being made about fisheries. And, and it's been reassuring that like people care, not just harvesters, but consumers care that, uh, you know, the fisheries are managed in such a way to, to protect food security and food systems in Canada and allow people to access this and to protect this small scale fishing way of life in our coastal communities. So people care. And in the end, government did hear that and did prioritize all of these things. Obviously, conservation and reconciliation and these objectives are important, but also food security and, and, and protecting this fishing way of life. Because even looking at when we were first talking about this and some of the reasons given or the justification given by DFO, it seemed like there was something happening that they needed these inspections, that there was something nefarious going on. And you and I've talked about this, the the amount that they were checking or the, the issues with the industry, when you actually looked at it, seemed quite minuscule. Mm-hmm. It's true. And that's some of the things that um, at the House of Commons, the Standing Committee uncovered was that, you know, in, in two years, there hadn't been a single violation for undersized prawns, actually. And that, you know, there was no kind of overwhelming problem with, with undersized prawns. And, and, and even so, undersized prawns aren't a conservation into their issue. They're, they're a market issue, right? You get more money for larger sized prawns. And so that's why these limits were brought in in the first place. The more we dug, the less there seemed to be any logical reason for this. And so it definitely was suspicious. Can you talk a bit about the importance of the industry on how big of an industry it is here in BC? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big industry in BC. I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head here. The size of the industry um, in BC is quite significant. And, and it has historically been that prawns are mostly exported to markets overseas. 
But increasingly, especially in the in the face of the pandemic, there were these growing local markets, especially when some of those ex- export markets kind of disappeared in the early part of the pandemic. And folks started to really think about where their food was coming from and think about wanting to be able to eat this kind of clean local products. And so that the grow the market for uh, prawns in Canada has just been growing enormously. And so to have this taken away, you know, would be an enormous setback for this industry. Right. And looking at some of the background of this uh, as well, and so looking at the industry, I know it's been recognized by OceanWise. It's been recognized as a sustainable choice when it comes to seafood. It, it just seems mm-hmm. like like the industry has been doing things correctly. That's right. Working so hard, you know, government ha- or industry has been consulted before and has been working with government over the last number of decades to really make this um, you know, a, 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 a best case, a best fishery, you know, really a model for around the world of sustainable, well-managed, abundant, um, you know, clean product for consumers. You know, when you look at what the alternatives are for shrimp and most of the shrimp and prawns that we get here in BC and across Canada are imported from fisheries that are some of the most notorious for environmental destruction, for, you know, slave labor, for all these kinds of horrible practices. So the spot prawn fishery here in BC is just, it's, a, it's an icon in, in how fisheries can be done right and done well. So do you anticipate then any change or for the next spot prawn fisheries and when we see the festival coming up in the spring, will it look like business as usual for people who have been there before? Yeah, I think it will. And I think that there will be an air of of excitement, uh, you know, this year, especially just this relief, knowing that um, we can continue to harvest and continue to have these tubs. Um, the, The announcement says that um, there'll be no changes to the industry for this year. So harvesters who may have been freezing in, you know, a one and a half pound container or perhaps freezing in, in um, freezer bags, they'll be allowed to continue in the way that they have been. And that the one pound tub, <clears throat> pardon me, which is the most commonly used, will then become the standard package available in future years. So really, we're not going to see any changes this year. And in the future, what we'll see won't, won't be a major change either, just you know, a narrowing of the packaging to that kind of one pound tail size. All right. Have you, were any of the harvesters, I know when we talked about this earlier, there was a bit of a scramble to even try and get the different sized of the size packaging. Were harvesters doing that or kind of waiting? Yeah, there was real anxiety in the industry because people were exploring, you know, and when you and I spoke back in December, there was this proposal from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans that they would allow um, for this tiny uh, spot prawn tub size. It's, it's really tiny. And when I sampled it, when I tried it out, you could get six prawn tails into that container. I mean, what an enormous challenge that would be to be on a fish boat in the waves and trying to pack a, a, a teeny little container with just six so harvesters were out looking at these, considering buying these tubs and really worried because they're very expensive, tripled the plastic waste. And it would uh, you know, represent just an enormous extra amount of labor to package prawns in these tiny little plastic containers. Um, so folks were really exploring that and thinking about what did that mean for their fishery? Were they even going to be able to prawn and sell to their own markets this year because that that new regulation proposal would really make it impossible. And so, uh, and, and folks were worried too. Lots of people had inventory of tubs from last year left over. Were they going to have to throw those tubs out? 
what was going to happen. So this just, you know, this is a massive exhale in the industry today. People know that they can go ahead and tub that people like Skipper Auto and like other direct marketing uh, fishing fish boats can say to their customers, no problem, you can get your prawns this year. We can use the tubs that we have. We can go ahead. All right. Well, it is uh, great to hear that things have been resolved and the industry will be able to to carry on the way that it was operating. We'll leave it there. But Sonia, thank you so much for joining us with the update. Well, thanks for following it all this time, Jill. And we're so so relieved to have this announcement today. Well, last week on the program, as you likely know, we were giving away gift certificates for people to check out the Hot Chocolate Festival. It hadn't started yet, but it is now in full swing, and we wanted to learn a little bit more about it. So joining us is Rhonda May, founder of the Hot Chocolate Festival. Rhonda, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you, Jill, and happy Blue Monday. Yes, happy Blue Monday to you as well. What better way to lift the spirits than uh, grabbing a hot chocolate and enjoying that? Yeah, well, we're trying, we're trying, and we've got 106 ways to do it, so uh, so there should be something for everybody. Uh, now, I didn't realize that the Hot Chocolate Festival had been uh, ongoing for this long and that it actually launched back in 2011. So can you tell us a little bit about the history yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, back in 2011, I was uh, producing, publishing a printed food magazine called City Food. And so the Hot Chocolate Festival was an idea I had that was really just sort of meant to be a side thing for the magazine. I had originally thought, well, we'll get one chocolate shop or cafe in Vancouver to do a different chocolate every day. And um that was a bit ambitious for for any one cafe, so we sort of adapted it and found um, seven local cafes or chocolate makers who agreed to do one hot chocolate and rotate it throughout throughout the month. And uh, so it was a very small thing. It was sort of fringy. Didn't think it would become as big as it is today. Uh, it, it just grew. It just grew and grew until eventually, even after I stopped publishing the magazine, the, the festival had a life of its own and it, it just wanted to keep going and keep getting bigger. And so we just sort of took it in that direction. And um, and here it is today, 12 years later, and uh, still a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds like it for sure. What is it about hot chocolate, do you think, other than the fact that it's a great treat? What is it that really draws people to it? I think it's just the almost like childlike fun you can have with it. Um, you know, life is just so grim and serious, and, and COVID certainly has not helped that. And even normally, before COVID, in this time of year, it's just a grim time of year. You know, there's the weather isn't exciting. Christmas is over. Your visa bills are coming in from from Christmas. Um, it's just gloomy, rainy, and no fun. So I think there is just this whimsical, let's have a little bit of fun atmosphere that it, it shouldn't cost too much. It's something the whole family can do because there's generally no alcohol involved. And it sort of has a big general appeal, but people don't seem to mind uh, these rather fanciful, uh, crazy drinks. They they don't seem to feel embarrassed about wanting to go out and try them or be seen with them. So it's kind of a phenomenon in that way. 
and um, yeah, I just think people let let loose and mm. have fun with it. <laughs> um, when we were giving away the gift cards the first day, we asked people to send in their favorite recipes or their favorite hot chocolate, and a lot of people had recipes with the addition of a shot of something alcoholic. So there's, I think, that option for a lot of people. But there were many, many recipes and people saying the base has to be this. You have to add this. This kind of chocolate. Have you noticed that things have really changed as far as the complexity of recipes over the years? Well, um, you know, you can be a purist, and and I actually am a purist about my own, the, the hot chocolate that I make at home for myself. It's really just very, very good quality chocolate with um, hot milk or cream. I don't put additive, you know, any kind of flavoring or anything into it. But other people are um, very experimental, and they will try different flavors that maybe the festival has inspired them. Maybe they never thought about putting sea urchin in their hot chocolate. You know, now they're going to try it. Um, it's, uh, it's, I think, just the way we cook nowadays. We're more open to trying new things, adopting things from different cultures, and uh, not feeling that there is only one way to do something because any recipe that claims to be authentic really isn't authentic. If you go back far enough, you find variations going way, way back with with anything. So um, I, I think it uh, it depends on the person, you know, whether they're experimental or not. And when you say that you're a purist for hot chocolate with the the, the good chocolate and, and milk, is there a specific way that you prepare it that you have to do that to make sure it's it's the best tasting hot chocolate? Um, it depends on whether you're using powdered or um, a solid already tempered chocolate. Um, no, not really. Just melt the chocolate, add in the add in the water or milk or cream or whatever you're using and stir. That's that's easy. Easy and fast to me. I mean, I've even melted chocolate bars, you know, just get a really good quality chocolate bar and just melt it in the microwave in a cup. So you can be very, it can be very simple. You don't, you don't have to have some special French technique or anything like that. But of course, the ones that are coming from the vendors, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't even know how they do it. You know, there's some, not only is the formula fairly complex, but the whole structure, when you look at how they've arranged it, it's like a, like a sculpture, like a piece of art with various elements on the top and on the side. And um, I mean, it's just amazing. So it's better to let them do it, you know, <laughs> and to try and do that at home. Like folks don't do this at home. But, um, you know, it's no, it just, to, just to answer your question very briefly, no, I don't think there is uh, any special way to do it. It's just whatever works for you. Okay. And you mentioned that, that sometimes it could even be a, a good quality chocolate bar. Does it matter, do you think, or do you have a preference with the type of chocolate, whether it's a white chocolate or one with a really high cocoa level, that kind of thing? Well, you can use anything, but um, I, I myself will use a high level of um, dark chocolate because I want to reduce the sugar level that, that's uh, in the bar. But uh, no, it doesn't really matter. It's how you how how sweet you like the drink. If you're going to use a milk chocolate bar, it is going to be milder and sweeter. If you use a, um, a dark chocolate or a bitter chocolate, you're going to get that element in in your drink. And it's like coffee. You know, some people like a milky coffee. Others like a coffee that's really strong and and really delivers a punch. Hot chocolate's the same, really. It's it's just what your preference is. 
All right. And what about, so if somebody wants to take part after hearing this, especially, uh, I know they can go to the website and get a lot of information there. How does somebody find out? Is there a map or where they can find out what businesses are taking part and where they can sample some of this? Sure. Everything's on the website and that is at um, hotchocolatefest.com, not festival, hotchocolatefest.com. And we tried to put as much as we could just right on the first page so you don't have to go looking for things too much. Just scroll down. Uh, There's a list of flavors. You can click on that and it'll show everybody who is participating, all the vendors. And if you click on the vendor's name, it will give you all the information about what they're doing, what they're serving, where they are, what their hours are. Um, whether they have vegan or organic or gluten-free or dairy-free available. And then there's also a map. So you can go to the map, and if you just want to go to all the uh, participants in your own neighborhood or in a specific neighborhood, you can find that on the map because they're all grouped by neighborhoods. And uh, so, you know, some people like to go to some places that are across the city that they've never been before. Other people just want to be able to walk to something in their own their own neighborhood. But all the information is on the website. But we're also doing a lot of information is available on Instagram. So we have an Instagram account called um, Hot Chocolate Fest. Again, same thing. And we're going to have news, anything that that is new and being added to the festival will be talked about there. We're also running a photo competition, a photo contest where people can enter the photos that they've taken of their hot chocolates and enter this and win, you know, up to a thousand dollars in gift certificates from all our participating vendors. So there's, um, there's a potential big reward and you can carry that chocolate eating or drinking on for the rest of the year long after the festival's over (laughs) if you're lucky enough to win (laughs) that is good incentive in case somebody needs even more of a nudge to get out there and try some uh, of the vendors and you don't have to be any evil bits you can just take the photo and and enter it and there it's not about the quality of the photo it just we want proof to know that you were there and you and you you were a patron of that vendor all right. And that's, that's all we're looking for. All so. right. Perfect. Well, people can learn much more on the website and on the Instagram page. Rhonda, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.